Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. People in the hospitals didn't know their own stories. Healthcare workers go in, they, they do miraculous work every day, and they go home, they get up, and they do it over again the next day. No matter where I go, I can always be telling somebody something new that is designed to help reshape this for all of us. I am going to create a Carnegie Hall where people can step into and find out about ways that we can take our health back. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Cal Fussman. Who is Cal? He's an American journalist and author. He is the writer at large for Esquire magazine, who's known for the What I've Learned column. He's interviewed everybody from Mikhail Gorbachev, Jimmy Carter, Ted Kennedy, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Robert De Niro, Clint Eastwood, Al Pacino, George Clooney, Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, Bruce Springsteen, Quincy Jones, Dr. Dre, Woody Allen, Pele, Barbara Walters, John Wooden, and Muhammad Ali. Listen, Anybody who has interviewed those people has gotten really, really good at answering questions and has learned a lot of things. He is Larry King's best friends, and he's my new bestie. You will love this episode. Without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Cal Fussman. Cal, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. I am so happy to be here. You know what, man? It is an honor and a privilege to have you here. Your reputation is unmatched. Your storytelling is unparalleled. And you're from Brooklyn. I don't know what else I can ask for. (laughs) You also got a guy with a lot of curiosity. So my first question is going to be about the dog that is to the right of your right shoulder. That is, that's, that's, uh, that's Gia. Gia is our little Maltese poodle who is the love of our life. I mean, you know, she's getting older now, but man, love that dog. How old? How old? 11. 11. I had a schnoodle, half a schnauzer, half a poodle. Uh-huh. Uh, he got to 17. 17. All right. So I can't imagine a more perfect person to be interviewing now. I was actually, uh, side note, I was actually born in Brooklyn myself uh, in uh, 1966. And then I, uh, my family escaped to the suburbs of Queens. And uh, you were born in Brooklyn, I believe, in 57. And you escaped a little further out to the island. Did I get that right? Middle of Long Island. So let's start there. How would you describe that time in your life growing up on Long Island in the 60s? It was, I want to say, Leave it to Beaver. You remember that show? Of course. But it was an extension 
geez, I wish I had the picture with me uh, of Brooklyn mm-hmm. because Long Island is an extension of Brooklyn. It's they it's just got different names, but it's the same land. They just put a line in it and then said, this is Brooklyn, this is Long Island. But what happened is, I think Larry King told me that like one out of six Americans have some kind of attachment through their ancestors to Brooklyn Mm -hmm. because so many people came to Ellis Island, they went to Brooklyn and they scattered outward. And there was a huge communal feel there that I had, man, we could use it now in the United States. I looked at this one photo of my dad with about 12 friends and they're sort of posed almost like a pyramid. And you see everybody's hands are around everybody. Some guys are like shaking hands or they've got their hands like this or Three or four people, maybe. Everybody was attached. Uh, and everybody had a similar vision to go out and make the best of this dream called America. And the extension of that was Long Island because these were kids who grew up in very small apartments. And the next step was homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, where there was some space. But, you know, I I lived on a block called 15th Street in Deer Park. Sure. One of the most amazing streets ever to grow up in. Because every house on that street had two, three, or more kids. And when everybody came into the street, it became a centerpiece that attracted kids from other blocks who didn't have that many children around. And you'd go out on a Friday night and there, I kid you not, there'd be 200 kids out in the street and everybody got along, everybody had a great time. And it was that sense of community, although we weren't grasping each other's arms like they were in my dad's generation, but we were together. Mm-hmm. There, You were an extension of the, the generation that was clasping arms. So you were, you know, pun included, uh, intended, you were within arm's reach of it. I I guess the question is, and this is probably a rabbit hole that you may or may not want to go down, but what the hell happens? Like what is going on right now where we are, in your opinion, obviously, where we are pointing guns at each other and we're rioting and what the hell is going on? You ever see the movie Avalon? Yeah. Uh, You know, that's a pretty classic example, uh, although it's confined to a single family, Mm -hmm. uh, that generation that came here, which was my dad's parents, and how, like, they had no choice but to cling together. It was survival in a way. They, They were all immigrants. They needed each other to help each other out. Didn't matter if they were Italian, Irish, Jewish, whatever, Polish. They congregated in certain areas. Uh, They put their houses of worship on the corner and they were together. And you see in the movie Avalon how the family's together and then uh, over time, and they have like an alliance where they have meetings. And they decide, okay, we're going to each donate money and we have a relative back in Europe who needs help. We're going to bring him here or, or that family here. They're together. And then what happens is the generation of kids comes and two of the kids start uh, like a department store that begins to do very well. And so they move out of the old neighborhood and they move to a nice place. They get nice cars. And naturally, there's going to be a little resentment from some of the people who got left behind. And in the movie, you might remember the best best line is when one of the older brothers who helped bring all the other brothers and establish this family 
to this place. Uh, it takes him a while, he and his wife a while, to get out to the suburbs where they're holding Thanksgiving. And everybody in the family's already there. They're waiting, they're waiting. But this first brother, is he's always late. And so finally, after many years of him being late, somebody, the kids are, now there's grandkids. They're all hungry. And finally, it's just decided, just cut the turkey and, let, and he'll have the turkey when he arrives. And you remember when the oldest or the older brother comes to the door and he sees that the turkey has been cut. Like, you cut the turkey! You cut the turkey! And he gets furious and he marches his wife out of the house, gets in the car and drives away. And that's the last Thanksgiving. And there's something, I'm, I've really been thinking a lot about this because I don't know if you know, some crazy things have happened to me since the coronavirus started, took my life in a completely new direction. But I've been thinking about all this uh, because I've been wondering this power of individualism that we're going to go out and we're going to do it our way. Uh, is up against the power of community. Mm. And I think in many ways, that is what we are seeing. And I, I'll give you an example. I have a daughter who's teaching in South Korea right now. You cannot get on a public bus in South Korea without wearing a mask, you will be the subject of humiliation because everybody under there understands they're not, for the best of my knowledge, they're not giving out vaccines there now. And they didn't have much problems with COVID. And when they did, they immediately zoned in on it and they brought the community together and said, like, no, everybody wears a mask. Everybody distances themselves and they just beat it, which, by the way, is what we did in Las Vegas 100 years ago. You talk to the historians uh, when the Spanish flu arrived, they understood it. Why we have people who just want to say, I'm, I have my rights. Mm -hmm. I'm an individual. I do what I want to do. This is a free country. And in doing so, it doesn't acknowledge the community that we have. I don't think it's that much of a burden on somebody to put on a mask. This is interesting. Have you ever heard of the Blue Zones? Are you familiar with that? Uh, the places where people live to be the longest. Um, I saw the author speak about it. Fascinating. It's fascinating. And the the one thing that the people who live the longest in the world have in spades is community. So, right. so it is part of our DNA. Um, you said something um, a moment ago that I was unaware of, that things have changed quite a bit for you since Corona. Tell me about that. Well, what happened is, and this kind of goes back to the Great Recession, I had a really rough time in the Great Recession for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I, leading up to it, I thought was my moment to break through the stratosphere. Uh, I had just, like I was doing great, writing a column for Esquire magazine called What I've Learned, which was sending me off month after month to interview Muhammad Ali and Mikhail Gorbachev and Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos and Jack Welch, and he was CEO of GE. Like I couldn't have asked for a better life based on what I wanted to do. At the same time, one of those interviews, Larry King had formed into sort of a friendship. And when Larry wanted to write his Soup to Nuts autobiography, I got to write it. And so I was living on the East Coast and I went out to the West Coast to like for the summer. And now think about this. This is like May, June, July, 2008. 
So everything is great. And I take my family out. We got a place on the beach. So I still got my place back in on the East Coast. And now we're out there for the summer. I'm going to do this interviewing. And when the summer ends and the interviewing is done, I'm going to go back to my place in the East Coast, start to write, can mop up the details over the telephone. But book contracts sometimes take a while. And for whatever reason, it got really prolonged. And Larry said, you know what? One thing I've learned in life is dot the I's, cross the T's. Uh, So let's just wait till the contract's signed. In the meantime, we're having breakfast every day. It's a blast. Everybody's happy. And just about the time we're supposed to leave, the contract comes in. And so now I tell my family, look, I get to stay out here in California to get download the information. And they say, like, we, we, we want to be with you, Dad. So now I got a place on the East Coast and I have a place on the West Coast. And at the same time, I'm thinking, this is, this is it. This is really what I want. And this is, it's a, it got a great contract and who knows where this is going to lead me. And all of a sudden, you know, September, October 08, all of a sudden the market just crashes. And basically every attachment that I had to writing, all of a sudden they're feeling the pain. They're, they're just spiraling down. And I'm in a position where I can actually say to the editors, you know what? It looks like you had to fire some people. Like cut my salary in half, keep the people. Because I'm thinking, you know what? I'll I'll surf this wave. I'm going to surf this sucker. And I write the book. Turns out great. But, you know, as time passes, all of the places that I might have gone to make money, they're just bone dry. Like I just had never seen a wave like this. And now I've overextended. I got places on two coasts. And I am like, oh, man, what am I going to do? Well, it was a really, really rough time. A lot of stress. And around that time, not long after, I met a surfer named Laird Hamilton. You ever hear of him? Just, oh. just a little. Okay. <laughs> you know, like a guy has hair like yours, <laughs> you, you should be on a surfboard next to Laird. You know what? That's <laughs> I, I can see you on a surfboard next to Larry, going out, not next to the coast, out in the middle of the ocean. The boats are taking him out there so he can surf and you can surf these 60 foot width. And Gabby, Gabby will take us out. That's right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm asking, you know, what happens, Laird, when you go down under 60 feet? of water filled with energy, turbulence. And and he said, I'll tell you what I do. He said, first thing I do is I close my eyes. I don't even want to waste any energy seeing. I let my arms go limp at my sides because that water is going to throw me around like a rag doll in a washing machine. There's nothing I can do about it. I just let it take me, but I'm listening. What are you listening to? And he starts describing the ocean with human qualities. You know, the tide goes in, tide comes out, inhale, exhale. And he said, there's going to be a moment where the ocean is just going to lighten up on me. And that is what I am waiting to feel and hear. And in that moment, at that precise moment, that's when I shoot to the surface with all the energy I have left. And I thought, wow, that's pretty good. And I put it in my pocket because I realized when he said it, that's what I needed to do during the Great Recession. Because... There was nothing that I could do. So for me to be fighting and clawing and slashing when nothing was going to happen, I was just wasting my energy. I was just stressing over something I could not control. So how did you eventually get above the wave? 
So, well, I like, I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how I just struggled and fought and fought and clawed and fought and got my head up and, <laughs> and the crazy thing is, if you can imagine, I'm still having lunch every uh, breakfast every day with Larry King and going to his CNN show. And when he's flying around the country, I'm on his private plane. So I am like gasping for air while I am flying private. <laughs> okay. That really mess with your head because what's going on here? Yeah. Like how can this be? There's a, uh, there's a famous podcaster. You may, I don't know if you know him. Um, his name is Rich Roll. And when he wrote, he's, he shared this publicly, so I don't mind sharing it, but he said something very similar when he was beginning to have success with um, his podcast and his book, Finding Ultra, his book went to the number one on the New York Times. He was being asked to speak and simultaneously they were repossessing his cars because he had no money. So he was literally at the pit of his life when he wrote it and everything was just about coming up, but there was a lag time between it coming up and he literally is looking out the window. He's looking at his New York Times bestseller and then repoing his car literally in the, in the same week. So it sounds like, sounds like that's what you're going through. It's exactly, you know what? There was a moment where like you just wonder how am I going to get through this? Just like you're saying, we're troll. And, and at that precise moment where things got to a point where I don't know if I'm going to get through this. I got three kids, young kids, and I get a Christmas cake, Christmas coconut cake from Tom Cruise. Come on. <laughs> I swear to God. Come on. I said, personally delivered from Tom Cruise. He, I'm just watching. He delivered it? No, he didn't. Oh. He sent somebody okay. to deliver it. I don't, I'm sure there are a lot of coconut cakes in the car. I was delivering it. Got it. I don't think that he could have delivered them all himself. But that's that was emblematic of the experience where, just like you described, I'm in this great place. I didn't do anything. I didn't fail in any way. All I did was kept doing great work and my work was getting better by the day. And I was meeting more influential people. There was just no money around. And not only that, but like the people who had money, you know, they threw it in T-bonds and they didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. So nobody was spending money. Yep. And all you had to do was just claw and claw. Although when Laird Hamilton told me that, I realized, oh man, I should have let my arms go limp. I should have relaxed. And like, trust me, I, like, I had people living in my place in North Carolina. I was housing people who were in trouble. All right. I'm holding up all these people and like, now I'm underwater. But I just clawed and clawed and clawed and I, I got through it. And it took me like a long time to pay things off. And, and then Laird tells me what he does when he goes under 60 feet and when he goes underwater. Yeah. So COVID hits, right? Yep. And you know when COVID hits, Rob, right at the time where I am poised to have my best year ever. Speaking and... So I had transitioned from the writing to speaking. And so that started a few years after the Great Recession. And immediately it was doing well. But by year number three, everybody knew who I was, like the deals were coming in. And in year four, all right, here we go. Underwater. And all of a sudden COVID hits. And literally every gig that I got just Gone. washed away. Gone. Like the whole year's income. And I just thought, I'm going Laird Hamilton on him. I'm just going to close my eyes. I'm going to let this rag doll me around. And it didn't even because 
I was so calm and peaceful. And I stayed in the bunker. I didn't take any risks, but I was carefully listening. And you know what I heard? Hmm. I just heard all these stories of all these people who, again, through no fault of their own, just like me in the Great Recession, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't lose a step. I was faster. I was stronger. Mm-hmm. I was doing better work. You had all these people who were being furloughed, fired, not only losing their income, but they are losing the health insurance that's attached to their job sure. during the worst pandemic in 100 years. Yep. And I just said to myself, you know what? This is wrong. It's just wrong. And it's got to be reshaped. I didn't have any ideas how to reshape it. I didn't really know anything about it. But what happened is when I was speaking, I was invited by hospitals to speak. And some hospitals started to ask me to come in and find their stories and tell their stories. Do you know who to? Their own people. Mm. People in the hospitals didn't know their own stories. And it's very common because healthcare workers go in, they, they do miraculous work every day, and they go home, they get up, and they do it over again the next day. They're not trained storytellers. There are all these privacy laws, so they don't even think of telling stories. Mm-hmm. But it's crazy because they're like the best stories in the world. All great stories come from vulnerability, and these are treasure troves of vulnerability. So I'm seeing all these breakdowns, and I I just know that healthcare has to be reshaped. And I said, you know what? I got 30 years to live if everything goes well. I'm just gonna devote it to reshaping healthcare. Now, that is like the most preposterous thing that you can imagine me saying, because I like I'm a guy who couldn't even pay attention in high school chemistry. Mm-hmm. I had no science background. I know very little about healthcare. But I just said, what could my biggest contribution be over the next 30 years? I've, I just, I, I spent time with the icons of the last 75 years. I've done that. But I never have been like an icon myself. I've never reshaped something or had a new idea to create something. And I thought to myself, well, why don't I try that? Just see what all the problems are and see how they could get fixed. Make things better for people. And so I just went off on this adventure, which I tend to like to do. I'm a guy who once went around the world for 10 years without a home. And so I just started talking to people about healthcare. And man, like I'm getting to the cutting edge pretty quick. I'm understanding the problems. And I can tell you something that very few people know. Number one, we, right before COVID started, every day in America, on average, a physician was committing suicide. Wow. I just saw the look on your face. Now, now, after a year of COVID, imagine those people who are under incredible stress, what they've endured over the last year, getting up in the morning, not knowing if they were going to get sick and die themselves or come home with the disease to their kids. Apparently, like two-thirds of physicians are reporting incredibly high levels of stress right now. And it's been estimated, and I've got this from a few people, it's not just one person who told me, that what's coming is called the silver tsunami. And all of these baby boom doctors who basically have worked for decades and hopefully gotten up some cash flow 
uh, they're leaving. Uh, the electronic records drives them crazy. Even the, the, there are many who are like driving an hour and a half to see a therapist and paying in cash so that nobody will know. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people are going to be leaving. And, and, and this is the next like two or three years. It's estimated 110,000 physicians are going to leave. Mm-hmm. Now, what that is going to do to everybody's health care, especially if more people get pushed in the systems. I mean, it's hard enough to get an appointment now. <laughs> right. Imagine what's going to happen then. Yeah. Okay. And I just have realized, man, we have been just brainwashed to think you get a good job, company's going to give you good insurance. You don't even look at it. You just walk in. They tell you what the copay is. You tell the doctor your problem. They give you a pill and hopefully everything is fine. Well, I'm not sure that that system's going to really hold. And we need the best way to solve the problem is for us to take our health care into our own hands. And even the doctors are saying this. Yeah. And so I am trying to think like a CEO, never really been a CEO before, but like what kind of program I could put together to help people take their own health into their own hands. Uh, because if we could stop getting sick, we solve a lot of the problem. We save a lot of the money. And that's where I'm at right now. And week after week on my podcast, Big Questions, I talk to people. I mean, this next week we got, in two weeks, um, General Electric's Jeff Immel, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, followed Jack Welch, and he started his job like four days before 911. Wow. And like nobody had any idea of all the ways the myriad of companies that GE had were affected by that. I mean, there it was the planes, they, they made the engines for the planes that got hijacked. They were insuring buildings next to World Trade Center. And they gave money to airlines that kept them afloat. I mean, People have very little idea of what happens when you're in these chaotic situations. But I'm just starting to talk to CEOs now to figure out a way to help people be healthier uh, because I don't think we can depend on the old system to take care of us. No, it's broken. We're one of the sickest. Uh, We spend more money on uh, drugs than anybody in the world, and we rank just above... Uh, South Korea in terms of health. We are, uh, I think we rank 52nd in the world. We are one big unhealthy fat country. And as a result of that, when something like a pandemic hits, you keep hearing the word comorbidity over and over again, because they're the ones that are susceptible. You know, if you're healthy, you have a 99.7% chance of survival if you're under uh, 50 years old. If you're sick, that just keeps going down. So you're right. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. I wanted to ask you, you've mentioned uh, your relationship with Larry King. And there's there's so many roads that can go down because he's such an icon. I'll be 55 this year. So I grew up, you know, watching Larry King like everybody did, you know, in my age. You did a, uh, a tribute to him that was so beautifully done on your podcast. As a podcaster, I had podcast envy because it was... <laughs> It was, uh, it was done so beautiful. Like it was one of those things where like the first 20 seconds of listening to it, I got chill. I got chills now talking about it because you, you intertwined audio footage, audio tape from, uh, from his life in different places. And you highlighted his stories, uh, with his buddies growing up in Brooklyn. And, um, you really gave us a sense for who he was. So number one, I want to acknowledge you for that because it was incredible. Number two, I'm sorry for your loss because I know what he meant to you. That was obvious. But the question I have for you is how is your life different because Larry was in it? Completely different. 
when I went out to help him write his book, I was a very under the radar kind of guy. I mean, as I mentioned, I was with all these icons month after month. Uh, But when you read the story in Esquire magazine, it was written in wisdom, in the words of the subjects. And so all you really saw was my byline. And I never really was the talker. I was the listener. And when I came to Larry's breakfast table, there was actually a moment uh, after a couple of months where Larry is surrounded by all of his buddies from Brooklyn and I'm just in there listening and Larry pounded the table and he said, speak, Cal, speak. And every day for like 12 years, when either of us or both of us were in town, uh, we went to breakfast together. Uh, For a few years, while he was still at CNN, I would go with him to his shows at night and he would sit me aside where everybody saw him just off the camera. So I was watching how he spoke. And when he left CNN, he did a comedy tour. He was really funny. Not many people who only saw him on CNN realized that. He's a great storyteller. And so I went around with him when he did this comedy tour. And it was like an hour and a half of him telling stories of his life. And I was inhaling the way he spoke. Not exactly the way he spoke, but I was inhaling the love he had for speaking. And crazily, uh, at breakfast, a, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Entrepreneurial Group Summit. Yeah, sure. Okay, so uh, every year or so, at the time, they would have a cruise ship that left Miami and 4,000 entrepreneurs would go on it. Richard Branson would fly down and be on it. Eric Schmidt from Google, like all the big CEOs. And you could, for three days, just hear all these people talk. Uh, the, the, the talks were all over the boat. There's a magnificent cruise ship uh, at like almost 24 hours a day. And so one of the guys who founded this company, Summit, his name's Elliot Bisnow, yep. came to Larry's breakfast table. And he said, Larry, would you like to come speak at Summit at Sea? And Larry said, sure. And Larry said, sure to everybody. And I, I knew immediately that Larry was not going to speak. How did I know? Because Larry was scared of water. So there was no way he was so going to. In, in other words, he said yes because he couldn't say no? He can't say no. He would, five people would come into breakfast and ask him to do something and say yes to everybody. <laughs> and like it would be the same time on the same day. <laughs> and you'd, you'd almost, he had, an, he had an assistant named Becky who you'd like have to alert her. Okay, like these five people are going to call you up. You're going to have to make excuses because he could not say no. I, I, and one of my tasks became just telling people no. Uh, because they would believe is yes. And I would say, it's not going to happen. So I told Elliot, like, he's, I'm sorry. I know he, he, he said he was going to come, but like, I know you're going to go and now put this on your brochure. <laughs> Larry King coming to Summit at Sea. He's not going to be there. And Elliot said, well, like, just give it some time. I said, I'm telling you. <laughs> He, just, he was once out on the beach and a riptide took him and he, he was just spit ashore and he's coughing and it never left him. He's not going. Okay. He don't even like to take a shower for more than a minute. Okay? That's what we're talking about here. He's in the shower and he's out of the shower. Right. He does not like water. Right. 
So Elliot says, okay. And he said, you know what, Cal? Like, why don't you come and talk? It's like you've interviewed all, all the, many of the people Larry has. And he said, why don't you do uh, like decoding the art of the interview? Yeah. Right. And he said, it's three days, Miami, the Bahamas. I'm thinking, you know, why not? What, what can go wrong? And so I, I got to come up with a speech. And I'm thinking, okay, like, at that point, not many people knew who I was because unless you read Esquire magazine, you, you really weren't going to know much about me. Yeah. That's where I was famous. So I said, well, I got to go up and speak. I had never really done this before. And so I, I, and I got great stories to tell yeah. of being with De Niro and Ali. And so my, I'm not really concerned about not having the material, but I've never really done it. And the thing about it was, I said, I asked about it and they said, look, there are like 30 events going on at once. Yeah. So don't, don't be nervous. And I'm thinking, you know what? 17 people may show up. So just go have a great time. You talk for an hour and then you hit the hot tub. What I didn't expect was that they marketed it really well. It was Cal Fussman, come see Cal Fussman decode the art of interviewing with Mikhail Gorbachev, Donald Trump, Muhammad Ali, and Robert De Niro. And they wrote it in a way where you might have thought that they were all on the stage with me. So I show up, and this room is packed. I mean, there are, every seat is completely taken. There are billionaires sitting cross-legged between the eyes <laughs> thinking Muhammad Ali and Mikhail Gorbachev are going to be in the room. And I look out at that crowd. I'm, I'm telling you, there was a line down the hall that people could not get in. The room was just, people were standing room only to the back wall, a long line. They had to close it out. <laughs> the fire marshal won't let any more people in here. And I look out in this crowd and saying, oh, my goodness, Like, what am I going to do? And so I just got up and I started to talk. And Larry King came out. He went on the boat. No, he came out of my mouth. Oh, you mean metaphorically. Got it. Yeah. Well, you asked me how Got I was it. influenced. All right. So basically, it was at that point, seven years of listening to him every day, command the conversation. Do you think that you were, for, I mean, not to get too woo-woo and spiritual, but do you think that there, you know, I'm starting to piece some things together uh, for you. Okay. So hang on one sec. Do you think that you're interviewing icons, your training with Larry King is setting you up now for this stage of life that you're in as being better prepared for it? A million percent. In fact, I'll sort of get through the second part of that story, but I realized when I said to myself, I'm going to reshape healthcare. Like this is the most comical thing I could have imagined saying. I have no background in this. And I thought people were going to laugh and nobody laughed. They got it. People started to say, how can we help you, Cal? Mm -hmm. Look, we got this problem here and this problem there. And then how can we solve? You got, you got to talk to this person. Oh, and that person can help you out. Everybody was getting behind me. And I realized that Larry had prepared me for this because what happened is when I got up on that stage and I just started telling stories, I got a standing ovation and there was a long line of people waiting to talk to me. And so people are moving down the line and there is this monk 
in monk garb <laughs> shows up and he says like, how long have you been doing this? And I said, well, to be honest, this was the first time I ever did it. And he said that I don't believe it. I said, it, it's, I swear. And he said, well, I'm telling you, this is what you should be doing for a living. He said, I speak for a living. I can help get you to all the places that want to hear you speak, but you should definitely start speaking. And so I did. And that put me on this place where you're getting up in front of crowds. And, you know, early on, there's always new things that kind of knock you off balance. Uh, suddenly there's a camera on you. Yeah, right. It, 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 and little or maybe there's a timer on the stage. Right. And maybe you go over the timer and you're not prepared that the event is going to treat it like an Academy Award and just start playing music and get you off the stage. <laughs> you know, you got to go through, you got to go through these moments to feel completely comfortable speaking in front of people in any environment to get to a point where, okay, I will change healthcare and I will get up in front of the titans of all those industries. And I will make sure that I'm not going to know more about being a doctor than the doctors, but I may know things about the pharmaceutical industry that they don't know or the insurance industry that they don't know or the way patients perceive them that they don't know. And by piecing all this together, no matter where I go, I can always be telling somebody something new that is designed to help reshape this for all of us. I love that. You know, one, one more on, on, uh, on Larry. I remember throughout, there was a theme with him, and I'm sure you've heard it, where he was, uh, my words, obsessed with the hereafter, obsessed with God, obsessed with what does it mean, obsessed with being an atheist in, in his own words. And I always wondered, listening to that, that moment where he takes his last breath and he's on the other side or, or you know, behind the, you know, the, the microphone behind the gates of uh, heaven, like, you know, was any thought like that going through your mind when he passed thinking he was so curious about this moment in life. Did you ever think about that after he died? I I couldn't help it because uh, his producer at CNN or one of his producers, Greg Christensen, was spending a lot of time with Larry uh, in the last year. Now, what happened is Larry's son, Chance, who was like 20 years old at the time, basically stepped up and was taking care of his dad through some really difficult times. Greg was there an awful lot. My dad uh, was turning 90 when the virus hit and he was all alone. So my wife and I moved across the country to be with my dad because we didn't want him to be alone. So it was very, it was really difficult for me uh, because here here I'd been having breakfast every day with Larry, but the breakfast kind of got canceled because things in LA were just being closed down. And, And then I moved across the country. And when I was talking with his producer, Greg Christensen, Greg immediately brought that up. Like the one question that he had never gotten an answer to for all those years. There was no other question that he didn't get an answer to. It was the only one. Now he has an answer to it. It's beautiful. All right, as we wrap up, um, I want to uh, play a quick game with you of what's the first word 
that comes into your mind when I mention this person? Gorbachev. I'll do it without a word. But you got to explain that. (laughs) (laughs) You found your way to tell a story. (laughs) There you go. That's the thing. I'm sorry, but... Beautiful. It's going to be the only time uh, that your quick questions are going to turn into a long story. But I'm not going to disappoint. Okay. Okay. All right. So here's what happened. I'm going to take you back to February 2008, New Orleans. Yeah. Tell Gorbachev is in town to give a speech about abolishing nuclear weapons. And this is years after he's the leader of the Soviet Union. And I'm sitting in a hotel lobby waiting to meet him. Yeah. I got an hour and a half to ask him any questions I want in order to fill out Esquire's What I've Learned column. Okay. Done the research, well prepared, ready to go. Phone rings. It's the publicist. Sorry, Cal, but... Your interview with Mr. Gorbachev is going to have to be cut short. Now, I'm a little concerned because this interview that I write, it's not in my words. It's in the subject's words. And those words can't just be any words. They got to be wise words. Sure. So there's no way I could fluff this piece up or fill it out. I need Gorbachev's words in order to write this piece. And I know it's going to take me an hour to an hour and a half in order to reach into his soul and extract the wisdom to fill out that column. Right? I say, how much time do I got? 10 minutes. 10 minutes. You can't do this to me. You promised. It was an hour and a half. Cal, Cal, Cal. A lot of very important people have been added to the list to see Mikhail Gorbachev. There's nothing I can do about it. Do you want the time or not? Well, of course I take the time. But as I hang up the phone, I'm feeling worse and worse and worse about this. And here's why. Because I know I'm going to walk into that room. We're going to shake hands. We're going to exchange pleasantries. We're going to be seated. And that's two minutes right there. Sure. Plus, my questions got to be translated into Russian and his answers back to English. That's another two minutes right there. So this interview is down to six minutes before it even starts. Hey, you can only do what you can do, right? So point in time arrives. Publicist escorts me into the conference room. And there he is. He's Gorby. Looks a little older than I remember. He's about 77 at the time. And I could just tell looking at him that he's expecting my first question to be about nuclear arms, because that's what he's here to speak about, Ronald Reagan, world events. And I looked straight into his eyes and I said, what's the best lesson your father ever taught you? Amazing. And he did this. (laughs) Didn't say anything. He's looking for something deep inside of him. Uh And then after about 30 seconds or so, it's almost like he's seeing a movie of his past playing on the ceiling. And he starts telling me a story, a story about when he's a boy and his father got called up to fight in World War II. Now, the Gorbachevs lived on a farm. Yeah. And so he starts describing the trip from the farm to the town where all the men are going to gather and be sent off. And he's describing it in detail. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is amazing. I've done all this research, read books, seen videos. I've never heard this story. Amazing. And another part of my brain is screaming, 
Wrong question. This interview is over because it's going to end. The Gorbachevs aren't even going to get to town by the end of this interview. Well, they do get to town. And when they get to town, Mr. Gorbachev takes Gorbachev and the family into his little shop and he buys everybody ice cream. And Gorbachev is remembering this ice cream. He's remembering the aluminum cup that it's served on, served in. And he's talking about this ice cream as if this aluminum cup of vanilla is in the palm of his hand. Yeah. And the more he's talking about this ice cream, the more we both have this realization that this cup of ice cream is the reason he was able to make peace with Ronald Reagan and end the Cold War. Because this cup of ice cream made him remember what it was like just before his father went off to war. The dread of not knowing whether he'd ever see his dad again. So I'm looking at this ice cream. He's looking at this ice cream. I'm looking at this ice cream. He's looking at this ice cream. We're looking up each other and we're thinking, man, this is deep. Just then, knock on the door. It's the publicist. Mr. Gorbachev, Cal, I'm sorry, time's up. And Gorbachev looks at the interpreter, looks at the publicist, looks back at me and says, no, I want to talk to him. Publicist shocked. <laughs> Backs out the room. Conversation continues, goes deeper. 10 minutes later, another knock on the door. This time, the publicist comes in a little more sheepishly. Mr. Gorbachev, Cal, time? No, Gorbachev said, I want to talk to him. Publicist backs out the room. Conversation continues, goes deeper. 10 minutes later, another knock on the door. This time, the publicist is in a full out panic. Mr. Gorbachev, Cal, there's a long line of people outside the door to see you, Mr. Gorbachev. The day was planned to the minute. I don't know how we are possibly going to pull everything off. Please, you guys, please. And Gorbachev looks at me with this smile and this shrug that says, hey, what can I do? Cal, I have no idea how you do it. I, I, it's unbelievable. You, it's like you hijack my brain with your stories. I am lost in the metal cup with ice cream. And here's the thing about it. I knew this interview was, you wanted it to end at two o'clock. So I was looking at the clock. This is just what Larry would do. You asked me about Larry. I knew I was going to finish at exactly two o'clock. <laughs> and now we are done. That is what Larry King taught me. <laughs> Cal, this is better than I thought it was gonna be, and I thought it was gonna be amazing. So this was incredible. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Cal. Do you have, um, I'm gonna link everything up in the uh, show notes of uh, you know your podcast and et cetera, et cetera. Any final words or an ask for people listening? Well, if you want to make healthcare better, please go to calfussman.com, send me an email. Let me know how we can do it. Let me know what problems you see. And I'll look into them. I am going to try to create a Carnegie Hall where people can step into and listen to, find out about ways that we can take our health back. Let's do it. I'll link everything up. Cal, thank you so much for everything. Thank you. It's been really a great time. and. Uh, Thank you, Gia, as well, for making me <laughs> home. It's really been wonderful. I, I'll never forget this moment. You literally made me channel Larry King and hit that two o'clock mark. Because that's he had a clock head, and now so do I. We're going <laughs> to leave it right there. Thanks again, buddy. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. 
It's Time to Live.